Did the Declaration of Independence create the anti-slavery movement in America? We'll talk about this on episode 770 of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. If you head over to my website, brianmcclanahan.com, that's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com, you can find all my social media accounts. You can find my Twitter account, my Facebook account, my YouTube account. YouTube is great because you can watch the podcast. You can also give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Again, great way to get on my email list. And when you're on that email list, you get coupons to great courses at McClanahan Academy, which is a fantastic educational resource. It's a great way to support the show financially, too, because when you buy classes there, you keep this podcast free of charge. And if you like the podcast, you'll like the classes. So give me that email address, get the free ebook, get on the email list. Don't unsubscribe. I send you an email about once a day, Monday through Friday, sometimes on Saturday. Not often do you get more than once a day, but sometimes you do if I'm selling a class. So please stay on the email list. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Give it that five-star review wherever you get your podcast. Leave a text review where you can. And of course, if you're watching this on YouTube, leave that comment for the algorithm. All right, well, let's talk about the topic of the day. And this is an interesting topic. Here we are, February 1st, 2023. And I've launched my class at McClanahan Academy on American slavery. That opened last week. So um, those that are enrolled in that, are going to get more of this. But let me talk about this idea that somehow the Declaration created the anti-slavery movement in America. And this is pretty controversial now because of the 1619 Project. Essentially what 1619 did, and Nicole Hannah-Jones did, was accept the proposition nation myth, in my opinion, that the United States was founded on the proposition that all men are created equal. It, 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 it establishes that as true, but then no one really believed it. So what Nicole Hannah-Jones does is say, okay, Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address says this. And that's really where that comes from, right? I mean, before this, you had the abolitionists running around saying that this was true, that we had this, this uh, you know, codification of this line because of the Declaration, and we're not living up to that. And you had this in the Republican Party, people like... Thad Stevens and Charles Sumner. You had it with abolitionists like Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison. And those are just some of the conspicuous names. But you had people that were believed in this in the 1830s, 40s, 50s. You started seeing it in the black community. Before that point, in the free black community, they, they were starting to, uh, to articulate this position before that. And that's because, of course, they recognized that no one was really living up to this. <laughs> so even in the North, right? And, and I did a, a podcast a while back on Slave North. So the real area to look at here is the North. If everyone believed this, except the South, because that's always how it's described. Well, I mean, the North was certainly pushing for this, but the South was dragging us down. The South believed in race-based slavery, and the North was free from this stain if that was true, okay, then you would have seen evidence of this in the North. And as historians have gone through and dug up over the last half century, this just wasn't the case. Now, Southerners were pointing it out in the 19th century. You're all a bunch of hypocrites. I mean, there's, are, you're saying all these things, and yet what are you doing? 
uh, in the North. You're doing exactly what we do, except you just don't have slavery. But of course, when you look at race relations in the North, they're pretty awful. When you look at the conditions of black Americans, free blacks in the North, they weren't great. In fact, Southerners could argue that free blacks were, were in their mind, better off in the South than they were in the North in the antebellum period. Um, and there might have been a point to that. So you had this very interesting argument in the antebellum period. But with this proposition nation, what's happened is that the left has run with this, like Nicole Hannah-Jones, and said, well, yes, we had a proposition nation, but we never lived up to it. And then you have the Straussians and the neoconservatives. And essentially what they try to do, and this is the 1776 commission report, what they try to do is say, okay, well, we did have the proposition nation and look at how we did live up to it. We started doing X, Y, and Z. And if it wasn't for the Declaration of Independence, we wouldn't have had anti-slavery in America. We wouldn't have done any of this. So it's the, we, we put the ball in motion, essentially. We started the ball rolling down the hill that we were going to abolish slavery that it was going to happen, we were going to have a more equitable race-based society. Now, you see what's happening here, though. They both believe in this myth, and if you believe in that myth, then you almost have to side with Nicole Hannah-Jones on this particular case, because even though those that say, well, we people were starting to do this, and you had abolitionist societies, and you know there was legislation, they were trying to do X, Y, and Z, and end slavery, we know that racism was rampant in the North, uh, even in the 1970s, you still had Boston with segregated schools. That's why you had the very famous photo, the standing of old glory, where you have a, a black man being held back by a white guy in Boston and hit with a U.S. flag, right? So we know that uh, these kind of things happened in northern cities, uh, and it wasn't because the South was making them do it. This is just because of the way it was. So we know all this stuff is true. So if you if you firmly believe in the proposition nation, then you almost have to side with Nicole Hannah-Jones on this particular case. I've said it before. Now, the thing that, of course, uh, they get entirely wrong is the nature of the slave economy in the South. Was it ultra-capitalist? Was it, was, it, uh, was it the foundation of capitalism? They get that entirely wrong. But regardless... Uh, this this idea that somehow Americans weren't committed to the proposition nation is true. Now, you had some Americans that believed it, even in the antebellum period, even in the South, you had some Americans that believed it. And in fact, all of your early abolition societies, or not all, but about 100 of your first 130 abolition societies were in the South, not the North. They were in the South. And Southerners took the lead throughout much of the antebellum period in abolishing slavery or coming up with a way for emancipation. Of course, you also had colonization as part of that. So this was a big issue. And um, the the neoconservatives and the Straussians, I think, get themselves into hot water when they make the statement that, well, we had this declaration, this proposition nation, and look, because the left is going to say we were never fully committed to that, and in fact, that means equity. And we've never gotten to that either. So what you have is the conservatives trying to say, well, we had this position, but we have to stop now. We have to stop right here. We can't go any further. And that creates a very interesting dynamic because if that's the case, right, we have to stop here. We can't go any further. We can't do this. Well, then, I mean, you start the revolution and then you're saying we have to stop the revolution. It's almost like uh, we had the aristocrats in France during the French Revolution, the early stages supporting it, and they did. And then it got bloody because they couldn't stop it. 
So once you get involved in this revolutionary process, the, the radicals are going to take over and they're going to run in a direction that you don't want to go. So really, at the end of the day, conservatives in America should not be on board with this proposition nation myth because we know from the very substantial evidence that no one really believed it, north or south. We know that there were actions taken. However, what about before that? And this is where we're starting to see this interesting argument develop. You've got John Meacham publishing a, a book review in the New York Times. I get the New York Times, so you don't have to. And I came across this, one, because I have a subscription to the New York Times, but two, because Professor, professor uh, Sinha, who was a uh, professor at University of Connecticut and has written on slavery and is a far leftist and, and, I mean, has dopey political positions. But she posted this review as I was going through her, her Twitter feed because I was looking for something else there. And she was gleefully posting it because somebody finally recognized her work. Now, this is a person that won the Bancroft Prize in American history in 2000. I think it was 2000 she won it. She's a fully tenured professor at University of Connecticut. She's been on television with Eric Foner and others. Um, she has been recognized by all the establishment hacks and all the lefty TV people as the one of the sources on American slavery. She, of course, is an Indian immigrant, and uh, I can't remember which school she attended, but I believe it was an Ivy League school that she attended for her PhD. Um, and she's written some books on slavery. She focused on South Carolina in 2000. A lot of people do. So they go, well, South Carolina is a specimen. Let's go study South Carolina. Of course, one of my favorite books as South Carolina is a specimen is by a guy named Larry Coger. The title of the book is Black Slave Owners, which is, I mean, it just, Coger was black, by the way, and it completely blows apart all of this uh, narrative about slavery being completely race-based because what he found in in uh, in South Carolina, and he goes after what's called the Woodson thesis, is that sl black slave owners in South Carolina were out were in it for profit. I mean, what they wanted was to make money, and so you had these free black slave owners and free black property owners in South Carolina. And there's also been a wonderful book on this. Uh, Schweiniger is the is the uh, author, and it's uh, it's a uh, black property owners uh, in the South. I think is the title. I can't remember the full title, but it's something like that. And um, he goes into detail of all these free black property owners and slave property owners in the South and how much property they actually did own, which, of course, by law, was illegal. But they did it anyways. It shows you the complexity of the slave system in the South. But regardless, what about before the Declaration? Was there an ardent anti-slavery movement before the Declaration? And a lot of this is going to focus on the North because uh, that's where these people are fixated. They think if they can just find the pure North, and then you've got the, you, you create this dichotomy in the United States of good guys and bad guys, North, South, good, bad, right? If we can just do that and find it there, well, then it proves that Americans, that people actually, more importantly, Ron DeSantis and the conservatives are wrong. But then does it also not prove that Maybe Nicole Hannah-Jones was wrong. This is the interesting thing. Because basically what they're doing is, is maybe forcing out the proposition nation myth. Or um, you know, maybe in some ways, maybe they are reaffirming it. It, it. it depends on how you look at it. If they're saying, well, then before this, we had these abolition movements. Um, I'm going to talk about this because I'm going to read the Meacham piece. It's not long. It's not a long piece at all. And... Um, it's, um, 
He says some interesting things here that I think are entirely wrong. First, John Meacham is a, a real problem. Um, I, I've made my statements about John Meacham all, all the time on this podcast, but um, this was published January 17th. And the review is of a book entitled American Inheritance, Liberty and Slavery and the Birth of a Nation, 1765 to 1795. So again, the title would imply that we've got this proposition nation, right? Liberty and slavery and the birth of a nation. And first of all, we didn't have a nation in 1776 or 1765 or even 1795. We had a federal republic. Everyone pointed this out. It's very important to get our terms correct because the United States has never been a single consolidated nation. In fact, it was explicitly argued against in the, uh, in the 18th century when the Constitution was going through ratification. So we've never had that. But I w- I'm going to read this because it makes some interesting statements. So Meacham says it was a bold, as bold an assertion as it was wrong. It was as bold an assertion as it was wrong. Last September, speaking in support of his state's stop-woke legislation, the Republican governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, gave a brief lecture on liberty and slavery. The American Revolution, he said, was what had caused people to question slavery. No one had questioned it before we decided as Americans that we are endowed by our creator with inalienable rights and that we are all created equal. Then that birth abolition movements. Now, again, this is kind of the 1776 commission position. Right? It's the Straussian position, the neoconservative position, and this is what Michael Anton gets into. Well, if you don't agree with this, then you can't like the founders, because this is what the founders believed. Of course, if you get Barry Shane's book on the Declaration, you'll see this. Otherwise, as we do the 1607, uh, 1607 uh, project and Virginia First, you're going to see that there was a lot of complexities in this. Right, So it didn't matter where you were. Uh, there's there's some things going on here that uh, this simplistic telling of the American story doesn't get right. And as I talked about Slave North, if this was true, you wouldn't have had all these other things happening afterwards where you had essentially uh, the creation of Jim Crow segregation in the North. You had states banning blacks from voting, states banning blacks from living in those states. I mean, living within the state, not even just visiting, but living. Uh, and, and even in some cases, visiting. Those states. So you had all this other stuff going on that would show that there really wasn't a commitment in the North to this. And uh, that this statement is, I, I've said before, I actually agree with John Meacham on this, incorrect. It's an incorrect statement. Now, it's also incorrect because you did have abolitionist groups before that. Okay, But let's talk about some of this stuff because he, he, he gets into these things. Facts, as John Adams once remarked, are stubborn things. And the fact of the matter is that the evils of slavery are being questioned long before 1776. Well, this is true. People were questioning slavery. They were questioning uh, the institution. Was it a good institution? Was it a bad institution? People were questioning that in the 16th and 17th centuries. I mean, there were people out there looking at this particular issue, and there weren't many. I'll say that. Um, You know, you did have, and he brings up the Quakers, for example. The Quakers... Uh, were certainly a group, at least in their their religious dogma, that were committed to the abolition of slavery. However, you had a large number of Quakers that were slave owners. I've talked about uh, one place in, in, on this podcast before in New York, where you had a, a place called Shutter Island near, uh, near Long Island, and it was a plantation, and uh, it was owned by Quakers, and you have 
you had a bunch of slaves on the plant on this plantation. So it was a Quaker-owned slave plantation in New York. So the Quakers weren't averse to uh, to the institution of slavery or having slaves. They had them. Theologically, they were opposed to it, and the very committed Quakers would be against it. Now, let me continue reading. He says, anti-slavery sentiment and arguments in the Atlantic world were nearly coeval with the rise of race-based slavery itself. African slavery existed in Spanish holdings in the New World by as early as 1502. It had come to English North America by 1619. Uh, now, again, we have, to, we have to understand 1619, we didn't have lifelong bondage in America with African slaves in British North America. We had African slaves in North America before this, in fact. Um, English North America, not, but Spanish North America, yes. And, and this, these people were considered to be indentured servants. It wasn't until later that you started seeing lifelong bondage in, in North America. It wasn't until you know, about 40 years later that you started seeing that actually codified. So you had, you had African indentured servants arrive in America, uh, but not in terms of race-based lifelong bondage. Did you get that in Massachusetts first, by the way, and then later in Virginia? By 1652, leaders in Rhode Island temporarily abolished human enslavement. Now, at that point, they were more interested in Indians, you have to understand, I mean, this, this was the first group that was enslaved in, in first English colonies uh, were the Indians. Um, and so uh, you also had white indentured servants. So African slavery was, uh, uh, was later. And we have to get that, right? African slavery was later. You had white indentured servants and you had Indians enslaved in, uh, in North America before you would have African, lifelong African slaves. And Pennsylvania Quakers called for an end to slavery in 1688. This is true. I mean, the Pennsylvania Quakers did that. They weren't really that, I mean, again, how many were really committed to it is a question. Pennsylvania allowed slavery um, until the state essentially started phasing it out by the early uh, 19th century. But um, the Quakers might have been calling for it, but we know that the dominant position in the Americas was no. This This is the point. So, if you're going to believe Ron DeSantis, then it should have been that people were committed to this. Now, we had a shift, right? So, what he would say is that we had a shift. We had this opposition to ending slavery, and then we had a shift, and people believed it. Or if you're looking at the 1619 Project, then people were committed to it. You know, there was always this uh, group that were committed to it, but Americans were not really that interested in ending it. And again, if you believe in the Proposition Nation, then Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project, or more or less correct. That's what you have to understand. The Massachusetts jurist Samuel Sewall published an anti-slavery tract, The Selling of Joseph, from 1700. Now, this is interesting because he brings up Massachusetts. The very first pro-slavery treatise written in North America was by a Massachusetts minister named John Saffin, and he wrote it essentially in response to this. The Sewell, the Sewell uh, publication. He wrote it in response to that. So there's a there's a book by a man named Larry Tides. It's entitled Pro Slavery, and those that have enrolled in in my uh, American Slavery course, my live course, are going to get a lot of this stuff in that class. So uh, Tides wrote this book, pointing back to the North as, in some ways, the theological origin of American pro slavery thought. 
and you had ministers, Massachusetts. In fact, Massachusetts was very interested in slavery. Even if they didn't have it there because the, the climate and geography wouldn't support it the way that it would, say, in Virginia or South Carolina or North Carolina or Georgia or Maryland, because it wouldn't do that, they would then be involved in large slave plantation ventures in the Caribbean. So you had a lot of Puritans who were certainly involved in the institution of slavery, maybe not in the British North American colonies, but in the British Central American and Caribbean colonies. So uh, just because they weren't here didn't mean they it wasn't here didn't mean they didn't believe in it somewhere else. You have to understand that too. And again, the Puritans were certainly not opposed to slavery. Uh, that that's they weren't against it at all. Uh, and New Englanders made a lot of money on it, and, and the trade in particular. So, uh, but this particular uh, this particular uh, treatise had a response from Massachusetts and, uh, you know, of course, theologians who were saying, well, this is entirely wrong. Uh, and if you look at that John Saffin pamphlet, it mirrors what someone like John C. Calhoun would have said in the 1830s. It, I mean, there's really not much difference in the arguments that were being made, which is why I've made the point on this show before that Calhoun's position in 1837 with the positive good thesis was the most unoriginal and uninteresting part of his entire political career. It's, it, he was making arguments that had been made at that point for over 100 years in North America. So uh, it wasn't that he came up with anything new there. As early as 1680, a contemporary noted, the words two words, Negro and slave, had a by custom grown homogenous and convertible in the New World. On a vid- visit to British North America around 1730, the cleric and philosopher George uh, Berkeley reported finding an, ir- an irrational contempt of the blacks as creatures of another species. Notice terminology. Irrationality was a cardinal sin in a supposed age of reason. Now, this is kind of a stupid statement, but um, yeah, I mean, Berkeley is coming here, and by 1730, he's saying we have this race-based system that's developed north and south, right? So there certainly was a racial element to American slavery. I mean, look, Southerners said it. They called it American Negro slavery. Um, the, the idea was to eliminate indentured servitude, but you still had that in Pennsylvania. In fact, it was uh, pretty awful. I mean, you know, you had situations in Pennsylvania where families would arrive on a boat and then they would sell off their kids because that's how they'd pay for their own passage over. I mean, this is terrible. There was a, there's a book entitled White Slaves on this particular topic. But you've got a slave-based system in America in the 17th and 18th century, without question. Benjamin Franklin himself was at one time a slave because he was an indentured servant. That's a slave. He could not legally break his contract or he could be thrown in jail. Well, if you if you are if your labor is owned by somebody else, well then you are a slave. You you have no choice. It was he was indentured to his brother. Uh, so I mean his brother didn't didn't follow up and throw him in jail, but I mean this there's a whole lot of nuance in all of this stuff that's often overlooked. So Meacham says our own age has been hard on both reason and history. Too often the past has been deployed to fight the ideological wars of the moment, a tendency that reduces history to ammunition. Now, I agree with Meacham here. This is a real problem, mainly from the left. Mainly from the left. Not from the right, but mainly from the left. Of course, to Meacham, it's people like Ron DeSantis that are doing this. But no, it's the left that's been engaged in this. And so Edward L. Larson's American Inheritance is a welcome addition to a public conversation 
in the wake of the New York Times 1619 project that has largely produced more heat than light. So he, he criticizes using history as weapon and then says the 1619 project is great because it uses history as a weapon. I mean, so Larson is going to have this very sober, reasoned look, academic look at the institution, and uh, we're going to have this great conversation about this. The role of liberty and slavery in the American Revolution is a partisan minefield, Larson writes, drawing on a popular narrative presenting the expansion of liberty as a driving force in American history, some on the right dismissed the role of slavery in the founding of the Republic. Appealing to a progressive narrative of economic self-interest and racial and gender bias in American history, some on the left see the defense of state-sanctioned slavery as a curse of the Revolution and an effect of the Constitution. Larson, a prolific historian whose summer of For the Gods won a Pulitzer Prize in 1998, writes that this polarity, quote, has opened the way for rigorous historical scholarship in the tradition of Edmund Morgan and Benjamin Quarles. Now, Edmund Morgan um, was an interesting historian. He wrote a lot about the Puritans, a lot about the Puritans. He focused mainly on Massachusetts in his writing. He wrote a very good book, by the way, on the Stamp Act. Uh, the Stamp Act Crisis. He and his wife wrote this. And in fact, I've said it before on the show, he has a chapter entitled Nullification in that book. So he's pointing out as early as 1765, Americans are talking about nullification and using that idea uh, that it could, it could thwart or that process that it could thwart. I shouldn't say idea because it's not. It's, it's a process. It's a, it's a tradition. It could thwart unconstitutional legislation because they had already conceptualized the United States and or what became the United States, the American British colonies, and uh, the Parliament in Britain as kind of this federal structure, right? You had the central authority in Parliament, the king, that could regulate international trade and defend the colonies, but then everything else had to be internal. That's essential to the federal structure. So what they did is said, we're just not going to enforce the law. You have a law here that is not enforceable. It's illegal, so we're not going to enforce it. Well, this is the same thing that the founding generation said over and over again during the ratification of the Constitution. They were well aware of this stuff. When they said the states would be powerful enough to check it, this is what they're talking about. They're talking about action of the colonies and later states in stopping unconstitutional legislation from the center during the period leading up to the American War for Independence. But, And then later, Morgan wrote a book on slavery that uh, I think it was 19, middle of the 1970s, uh, that was uh, pretty popular. Uh, and and um, it, it caused a lot of discussion. In fact, really the high point, I would say, of American interest, the scholarly interest in slavery, in a way that was much more dispassionate than it is today, was the 1970s. You had Fogel and Engerman's Time on the Cross. You had uh, you had Genovese write Roll, Jordan, Roll. You had this very popular book by Edmund Morgan. He wrote popular histories a lot of time, but you had this popular book by Edmund Morgan. So you had a very rigorous debate about slavery in the 1970s. And of course, by that point, there's a reason why the 70s it was hot, because you had the civil rights movement beginning in the 50s and then really ramp up in the 60s. And all of these historians came of age in that time. And it takes a little bit of time. There's a drag when you actually get people writing books and producing them based on the social movement. So think about the 1619 Project. That's what we're seeing. There was this, this drag on, you had this, you know, um, this interest 
and, uh, you know, quote-unquote social justice really ramping up during the Obama years, and then you get Nicole Hannah-Jones. See, there's a drag there. So the, the scholarship will often follow the social movements, but it takes a little bit of time. So, um, so the 70s are a really important part of scholarship on slavery, and I would say some of the best scholarship that's ever been written on it. American Heritage, then, comes to us as an effort to step into the blood-strewn chaos of the present to calm the madness of a public stage where passion has trumped reason. I, don't, I mean, <laughs> this is John Meacham, American Inheritance. This book comes to us in a, as an effort to step into the blood-strewn chaos of the present. The blood-strewn chaos. That's a little dramatic. I mean, this is where Meacham is hyper, hyperbolic and dramatic. To calm the madness of a public stage where passion has trumped reason. We just have this academic historian coming in and he's saving us from all this blood-strewn chaos. As Larson argues, liberty, slavery, and racism, an essential element of slavery, have always been entwined. One way or another, he writes, the American Revolution resulted in the first great emancipation of enslaved blacks in the New World. So actually, Larson would in some ways agree with um, with Ron DeSantis. He would, he would, this would be a Proposition Nation book, right? I mean, he, he's the birth of a nation, right? It's liberty, slavery, and the birth of a nation. It's a Proposition Nation book. He says, yet to deny that a liberty-seeking people largely denied freedom and, and equality to the enslaved is to deny self-evident truth. And again, I would agree with Meacham there. You have to understand what they thought about freedom and equality. I mean, those terms are loaded. You have to understand what they thought about liberty. That term is loaded. All these things are loaded. And if you don't understand the meaning of them, then you're going to get this stuff wrong. Mindless celebration of the American past is just that, mindless. But so is reflexive condemnation. The messy, difficult, unavoidable truth of the American story is that it is fundamentally a human one. Imperfect, selfish, greedy, cruel, and sometimes noble. Notice how he has the bad stuff first. It's not noble, but sometimes imperfect, selfish, greedy, and cruel. It's all these bad things, and then sometimes noble. I mean, so all this bad stuff is there first. It's, it's a way of looking at the past. It's Edward Gibbon. History is, is these stories of, you know, the, the study of the crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind. I mean, this is, this is the way that people like Meacham and others, they come at it from a very negative perspective, and they tell all the bad stuff. It's kind of a muckraking effort. And then every now and then you have someone rise above all of the muck and provide these shining examples of glorious human accomplishment and nobility. Well, is not the, the cause of uh, political freedom noble? Political liberty, is that not noble? For the people that, that were considered citizens at the time, is that not noble? Of course it is. But no, no, this is all selfish, greedy, cruel, and sometimes noble when it comes to social movements. One might wish the nation's story were simple, but that wish is in vain. And again, I agree with Meacham on that. Uh, Meacham on that. It's, it's not simple. A key lesson from Larson's narrative is that, the, in, that ages past were not benighted by a lack of knowledge or the immorality of race-based slavery. To me, Larson's unemotional account of the Republic's beginnings confirms a tragic truth that influential white Americans knew and understood that slavery was wrong and liberty was precious, but chose not to act according to that knowledge and that understanding. Well, I mean, I think that's true. Uh, look, um, they did talk about these things, and did it apply to this group or that group? You know, we have Benjamin Rush, for example. 
um, writing that race was a byproduct of leprosy. I mean, he was against slavery because he thought blacks should be pitied, not enslaved. Uh, he, he didn't think they were equal. He didn't think that they really were on the same level as whites, but he thought it was a condition. It was a, it was a physical condition from a virus, essentially a disease. And then you had people like Charles Caldwell, who was a student, came up you know, with the scientific racism. But um, this is how people thought about the stuff at the time. And we cannot ignore the role of Africa in all of this either, in dominating the trade and setting the terms and providing the supply. I mean, there's a lot going on in all of this. So, um, And it wasn't race-based there, but it was a, a ready population for Europeans to pick up and use where they could in the Americas to produce cash crops. And it was a choice, one made for convenience. Slavery and racism were not externally imposed forces that lay beyond human control. They were rather economic, political and cultural constructs that served the purpose of the powerful. In this case, white people. Because of this, they stood for centuries. Now again, I just made the point where Africans have to fit in the story. And the there's a book by uh, Thornton, a man named Thornton, that talks about the African role in the trade and how important it was and how this didn't show that they were victims of all this, but they actually drove it. Um, so <laughs> you, you create this victim you know, mentality or victim, you know, the, the victors and the, and the victims in this, but it's a lot more complex than that. And I think um, Meacham doesn't do a good job here explaining that. Our forefathers came over here for liberty, John Adams argued in 1765. Providence never designed us for Negroes, I know, for if it would have given us black hides and thick lips and flat noses and short woolly hair, which it hadn't done, and therefore never intended us for slaves. So here is here is John Adams making a very racist statement, I mean, by the way, uh, saying that you know because of race, certain people were intended to be slaves and certain people were not. And yet in the same area, Benjamin Rush could write, where is the difference between the British senator who attempts to enslave his fellow subjects in America by imposing taxes upon them contrary to law and justice, and the American patriot who reduces his African brethren to slavery, contrary to justice and humanity. And again, I just pointed out, you know, Benjamin Rush, who uh, thought that race was a disease. And uh, I mean, his leprosy, it was caused by leprosy. He actually wrote this. It was caused by leprosy. And these people were not necessarily equal. Okay, but, um, and so he made these statements against slavery, but, and he was anti-slavery, but he wasn't interested in racial equality. How the Quaker Richard Wells asked in 1774, can Americans reconcile the exercise of slavery with our professions of freedom? Well, I mean, this gets into the idea of, it's culturally, right? This is where Meacham is missing, say, David Hackett Fisher here, and how they did reconcile that. Because there was a cultural element to this, and also the, the idea of citizens and statesmanship and all these things. The answer is painful, but must be plainly stated. Americans reconcile the gap between the ideal and the real, profession and practice, by blaming the old world for imposing what was called a necessary evil, by crafting racist lies about black inferiority, and by manipulating scripture to find biblical sanction for slavery. Race, Larson observes, offered a way for them to enslave others without the fear of becoming enslaved themselves. Uh, and, and again, I think that he's not necessarily incorrect about this. Race was used as justification because you had these societies that were that were in, in the mind of Europeans barbaric. They were anti-Christian. They practiced uh, cannibalism. They did all kinds of weird things in their religion. And uh, to them, these people were they were uneducated, barbaric. They didn't understand Western concepts of liberty and government. 
and literature and art. They didn't have any of that. And so they were a race to be enslaved. And um, you do start seeing the development of that over time. And that the race allowed for the clear differentiation between slaves and freedmen uh, in America. It did, it did establish that. So there is a racial element to all of this, without question. Uh, anyone that would deny that is wrong. Now, it didn't mean the institution was bigger than that, as I said, with things like black slave owners and, um, you know, how did that, how, how was that affected? And you started to see the lines blur a lot. So slavery was a bigger institution than just race. And it was a complex institution with all kinds of intricate things going on in relationships and, and how these things worked. But at its core, of course, you did have race-based slavery in the New World. So then Meacham says, this, does this make the national experiment irredeemable? Are these shadows of our failures so dark and so long that no light can emanate from our past? In Larson's terms, does our inheritance of slavery overwhelm our legacy of liberty? Um, the century since America's founding suggests the answer is a qualified no. The anti-slavery tradition in the country, this is Meacham now, one older than even the revolutionary vernacular of liberty, offers a positive moral and political example of how a people can move from error to truth. For all the Constitution's compromises with slaveholders, James Madison noted that the document did not explicitly recognize property in man, thus giving the anti-slavery project room to maneuver and to grow. Such was Frederick Douglass's view when he insisted that the Constitution was a glorious liberty document. Now, I'm going to uh, I'm going to talk about that in a future podcast. Michael Bolden had sent me a long piece by uh, uh, a legal professor named Barnett, who I've talked about on the show before. Uh, that gets into this idea, was the Constitution a pro-slavery document, an anti-slavery document? I've said it's neutral. In fact, I would agree with Randy Barnett on this. He, he says the same thing. Um, I don't think it was an anti-slavery document, as Douglas would make the case, or Lysander Spooner or others. But I don't think it was a pro-slavery document either, as William Lloyd Garrison would say. I don't think it's either. It's not either. Uh, there was certainly language in it that allowed for the existence of slavery. Uh, but it was also uh, neutral on it as... Madison contended so that you could have wiggle room in the states for the abolition of the institution. In a 1791 letter to Thomas Jefferson, who had written of black inferiority in his notes in the state of Virginia, the free black man and almanac author Benjamin Banneker argued for the natural extension of Jefferson's own assertions in the Declaration of Independence to all human beings. However variable we may be in society or religion, Banneker wrote, however diversified in situation or color, we are all of the same family. That is a truth we too must hold to be self-evident, even if our forebearers chose not to do so. Now, Jefferson, uh, as Kevin Goodsman has pointed out in his book on Thomas Jefferson, uh, didn't really believe that Banneker was equal. I mean, he, he made it a point uh, in, in rejecting some of the things about Banneker. He was very cautious about Banneker as being this intellectual equal with, say, someone like Thomas Jefferson or other members of the established intel intelligentsia, so to speak, the intellectual community in America. Um, so Jefferson didn't really buy it 100%, uh, even if he said some interesting things about this, but um, to uh, about Banneker, for example. So then Meacham concludes, neither as rigorously argued as Sean Valencia's No Property in Man or as original as Manisha Sinha's A Slave's Cause, Larson's sober new book nevertheless re repays uh, reading for it has a good deal to teach those who want to see the American story in overly simplistic terms, which means something someone should send several copies to Tallahassee with express shipping. Again, Meacham can't get over himself. He has to 
of course, uh, you know, stab uh, DeSantis that, you know, well, we created, he just basically agreed with DeSantis at one point. Well, I mean, we did have this declaration and people relied on the declaration to think about this, but we did have people who were interested in anti-slavery before that. But I mean, if you want to follow DeSantis' logic correctly, it was that line that certainly led to larger scale abolition movements in the United States because of that line. It did happen, though Americans weren't really that committed to it in action. I think this is this is the funny thing about Meacham. He kind of gets some things right and then kind of doesn't get some things right. And because of politics, he can't see beyond his his own biases to say, well, I mean, there are some things here and there. So, look, Meacham's got some real issues. And, of course, I talked about the Lincoln myth and what Meacham is. I mean, Meacham is a joke when it comes to Lincoln myth. But this essay was interesting. All right. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.